Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Now, I've always been fascinated in people, and I remember an interview I did with the wonderful John Amici OBE, clinical psychologist and former NBA player, when he recounted to me that he remembers his mum all those years ago saying to him that the most unlikely of people in the most improbable of circumstances can become extraordinary. And that's what we're going to look at today. So this episode is all about ordinary people and extraordinary performance. So welcome to this episode as I chat to Mark Kahn, the Global Head of People and Organizational and Executive Sustainability of Investec. Enjoy. In a constantly changing world, today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. So welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma, and I'm absolutely delighted for this episode to welcome Mark Kahn. Now, Mark, welcome to the series. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's uh, it's always good to uh, meet a new person, and uh, I think we're going to do something very interesting in this conversation. Uh, you know, it's been great. We've already had a conversation prior to us recording, and I think in some ways we may be uh, kindred spirits, Mark. So I'm I'm looking forward to what happens on an ongoing basis. Exactly, yeah. exactly. This will be our test. I think this will be our test. Yeah, no pressure on me, on me, I hope. So listen, at the moment, you're the global head of people and organization and executive sustainability at Investec, uh, honorary visiting professor at Middlesex University, which we discussed, a chartered business coach and a clinical psychologist. Now, that's that's a, an interesting and in some ways eclectic background. And I want to begin by saying everyone's got a story. Tell us a little bit about your story and your journey to this point. Okay, well, let's see if I can praise it in a, in a minute or two. Otherwise, we'd be here for a long time. It's a 25 <laughs> year story. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, let me, I'll begin with the end where I am now. So I've sort of arrived after 25 years as an executive of a yep. financial services multinational. And I look after the people and organization uh, components. So that's everything associated with the way in which uh, people in the company um, are driven to produce the kind of value creating uh, outcomes that we want for our clients. And right. So, um, and in addition to that, I'm also the executive for sustainability. So that's the climate and equality uh, uh, commitments that the company has, and these these are interrelated in some ways. Okay. Um, and then, as you correctly said, at the same time, I also have had an academic career, very sort of partial academic career along that period, which has led me to um, a visiting professorship at the university here in London um, in the people, organisation, and strategy practice. Uh, that's that's the the kind of frame that they've given me, professor of people, organization, and strategy practices. I and I think that maybe is quite a good set of words to describe me is I look at the way people organize themselves strategically um, and everything associated with that towards some kind of shared end. And so I'm particularly interested in the way human beings interact to create uh, shared outcomes. 
and obviously business is one of those, but it's not the only, the only arena. Um, I started life out 25 years ago as a clinical psychologist. That's what I actually yeah. <laughs> studied to become. And I did work as a clinical psychologist a little bit in hospital and also in private practice for a, a couple of years, quite some years. And by chance, moved into the world of work rather than the world of business, but it's the experience of work because I was come from the clinical side. And that happened by um, a strange set of, of occurrences, um, two or three that came together at once. Uh, one of them was that I started being asked to mediate conflict between individuals in small businesses, right. mainly because one of them was a patient of mine and he arrived depressed and his doctor had referred him to the therapist and, and along he came to me. And when I listened to him, I really, it sounded more like he was having a fight with his business partner, to be honest. Um, and I, I said something in the 1990s, which today doesn't sound very abnormal, but in the 1990s was very abnormal for a clinical psychologist with just imagine, you know, two chairs, a pot plant, a clock, <laughs> you know, a box of tissues, a bookshelf with certain Freud, Freud texts <laughs> on it in a very quiet uh, place. No table set. between the chairs. And here I was saying, well, maybe you should ask your business partner to come to your next session and let's see what's going on in the relationship. And the chap looked at me, his doctor referred him for depression and given him some pills. Um, but of course he did do that, um, which set me on a path because what happened was his partner came along and we started to work together around their relationship. And of course, business issues came into it. And a whole range of phenomena. They were equity partners in a very small little business had grown up together. Their wives worked in the business. You can imagine how it went on. So um, when that got resolved, you know, funny enough, he, uh, he wasn't as depressed uh, afterwards. And then I started to get phone calls by word of mouth of other small businesses. Yeah. And, and so that was the one thing that started to take me in that direction. And then there were two others, which are shorter. I was doing medical legal work, quite a lot of assessments for, uh, you know, in civil, mostly civil matters in which right. there was a question of psychological uh, trauma or damage. And I would go to court and so forth. And then firms of attorneys would use me as a mediator in some of their, their work. And then on the third element, I started to do some training or teaching. Okay. Some coaching. And these things over time eventually built into a consultancy and cannibalized the therapy work over some years, slowly but surely. And then I ran a management consultancy, was bought by another one. And then in uh, 2008, I was headhunted out of this management consultancy into a corporate to run their organization development division. And that was uh, sort of uh, 12, 12, 13 years ago. Right. And I've been in corporate ever since. And more recently, in the last few years, find myself an executive in corporate, you know, and, and a lot of coaching, executive coaching and teaching and public pub, published a couple of books, a book and a couple of articles and so forth along the way. Right. It's funny, isn't it, how our careers sometimes morph into shape, maybe as a as opposed to designed that way in the first place. Well, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, again, you get people that say, I need a goal. I should like make a, like a three, five and 10 year goal. And I must fight for my goal in every day and whatever I do, I'm fighting to get to this goal. They say yeah. strive, but what they mean is kind of fight. You know? 
And I guess that is definitely an option, but I never found that to be the case. I just worked with what was happening around me in exercising whatever bit of talent I managed to have. And, and then as opportunities emerged, I made choices and I moved along. And I've found that to be um, a, a more satisfying way of having a career. And I, I sometimes lament a lot of the literature out there and a lot of the, the people that say, you know, you set these goals and shoot for these goals seems almost Faustian, almost sort of like heroic rather than working with what's happening around you systemically. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It reminds me of that old Maureen Lippmann advert when uh, as long as as long as the child graduated with an ology of some kind, uh, <laughs> the parent was happy. Um, but yeah, it kind of resonates with me because life is full of twists and turns, isn't it? And at the end of the day, you look back and you think, I'm not quite sure how I got here, but it's been an interesting ride. Exactly, exactly right. Now, I'm, I'm keen to talk about something that I saw that you spoke on in your in your TEDx talk, because that really resonates with me. And I know the subject of that was about ordinary people and extraordinary performance. And the reason that, it, and it was very kind of you to share the link, the reason it really resonated with me, because it was about context, and we'll get into that. And I just, I just wonder whether organizations have realized that post the pandemic, they may have an opportunity to rip up the playbook and set a new context in order to drive performance. So let's just start because I, I, you have a, a strong point of view on this and through experience, um, you have that point of view, but just start us off this, this journey. What do you mean by ordinary people, extraordinary performance? Okay, so I, I really make, in my opinion, only one point in, the, in that TEDx talk, even though it's 20 minutes long, 18 minutes long. And in my work, I've, I, you know, I like to say it's really only about a single point. And, yep. and, and this is it. You know, if we looked at 20th century thinking and we compare it to 21st century thinking mm -hmm. and we ask the question, what is the key difference in, in, in the way in which we conceive of organizations and the notion of performance inside them? Yep. Um, the, the key difference is that we have had in the in the 20th century, an almost entirely um, obsessive approach to it being about an individual. Right. We've conceived of performance as being uh, uh, individually driven, so to speak. Okay. So we may, we describe it at the individual level. We measure it at the individual level. We reward it at the individual level. We perceive it at the individual level, and we re we recruit at the individual level. Yep. In the 21st century, we have realized that this was not only was this um, limited in its effectiveness, but it actually was a complete fantasy. It wasn't even the case because really we know that value creation is collective. Value creation is actually the notion of coming together to produce an outcome and that no single individual manages to produce outcomes in organizations, I'm speaking in organizations here, mm -hmm. yeah, all by themselves. And even in one-person organizations, you know, I'll, I can show you that that's not really a one-person organization because they're living on the shoulders of others and yeah. so forth. So <clears throat> let me give you a simple example. Please. Um, let's, let's look at the idea of recruitment, finding talent. So, if we, you know, look at the common all garden wisdom. It's like 
you know, what you've got to do to be successful and to get people to really perform is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get good people. The okay, war on so, talent, as they call oh, it. Oh, yeah, talent. Let's go and you know, find this talent. You know, this is an obsession. It's an absolute obsession. It's a madness, really. Because you get these enormous uh, efforts that go into, firstly, finding the especially brilliant people. Secondly, uh, you know, recruiting them through all sorts of, you know, attractive ideas about what they can do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the war for talent, okay? And then, and then once they're inside, you know, trying to make them perform. And then inside the organization, even those that are already working, there's enormous efforts to identify who the best people are, the talent, the talented people. Now, this, this does not hold up to, to empirical interrogation. What is it? It just doesn't. I mean, there's been a whole industry on this, hasn't there, Mark? For years, it's, an entire uh, it's, industry about hunting talent. It's... It is the industry. I mean, it's it, it's unbelievable. Now, the, I know that people are probably listening, going, "Well, what's wrong with that? That makes complete sense. Why would I go out and not want good people in my company?" So, you know, there's a level of logic to it which is which is undeniable. But just for a moment, let's just pause and imagine why this is a problem, and I kind of zoom out and show. Okay. When we look at the research, what we find is that. Just because you were excellent in company A and doing brilliantly, when we employ you and we put you in company B, you don't always do well. And vice versa, you could be doing not so well in company A and you manage to move to company B and wow, you just are amazing. And this happens so often that just plain observation point of view, you, you can see well, hold on a second, that can't be right. If you were doing brilliantly in the one company, how can you not do well in the other and vice versa? Now, you don't have to be a scientist to answer the question. I've, I've raised this many times and most people respond immediately. And they go, I know why that is. And I say, well, why is that? They say, well, it's like in sports. You know, you go and get buy this brilliant player and they come to your football team and, it, you know, they don't do so well. Whereas you get, you know, like a Leicester side or a, a, a sports team that doesn't have all these stars in it, but they play so well together that they do brilliantly. Um, how, what is going on here? And that is, that is really the truth of what I mean by ordinary people, extraordinary performance. It turns out that it is not about finding specially brilliant people that get you to get performance. What you need to get performance in a sustainable way okay, is you need to have an environment which is extraordinary. Right. And if your environment is extraordinary, as long as you've got ordinary or better individuals, you will get an extraordinary outcome. And that is the central point of 21st century thinking. And so that's why, you know, you can break your back finding these brilliant people but then you put them inside your organization and your organization has got a, a poor environment. And then you can't understand why you don't get the outcomes. Or the, the flip of that, you've got an incredible environment. You, you, just, you, you just take regular, ordinary people who are ordinarily talented, but you put them in this incredible environment. In my word, you get extraordinary outcomes. Now, there's just one last caveat to this. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you've got an incredible environment and you have remarkably talented, especially talented individuals, the combination thereof is possibly better 
just because of that incredible combination. The ingredients. Okay, so if you've got 20 Elon Musks and you yep. put them inside of an incredible environment, you probably get a better outcome. But I say probably because it's not guaranteed than if you have an incredible environment and you have 20 Mark Collins or Adams. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. But if you looked at the, the cost-benefit analysis of doing that, you should spend 80% of your time on your environment and only 20 on getting the brilliant people. Why? Because think how much easier it is to just get ordinary people. It's, it's relatively easy. And, uh, you know, and, but the environment is the key. Um, and when you, when you do the maths on that, you can see we've had it the wrong way around. We've been focusing so much on the individuals, yes. not enough on the environment. See, see, I find this fascinating because, you know, having gone through a, a legal career, Mark, there was always, you know, the, the milk rounds where they would go to the top universities to try and get the, the, the cream of the crop and try and, uh, and, and organizations do that. They want to try and get the best of the best. And you said a couple of things which really resonated with me in the video, which in some ways they, you draw breath, don't you? Because you said there's, there's absolutely no correlation between these psychometrics and performance and we know that they are used my god that's a billion dollar industry in itself isn't it in relation to leadership and then also leadership development you said stanford did a study in 2016 uh, of the last 30 years and there's no link between these programs and performance correct correct it's, it's one of those emperor with emperor with no clothes you know the old yeah. story about emperor with no clothes yeah i do but it's, it's something in our industry today so just to you know explain that i mean if you looked at performance outcomes, in other words, delivering value in the organization, yeah, you know, real measurable value in the organization that you can measure, and you correlate that with the leadership development programs that are being run, you find that the correlation, there's no correlation. Sometimes the, you know, it's you cannot make causative statements and say, well, because we've done these leadership programs, the company is now performing better. And the quality of leadership can be associated with that improved performance. You find just as often you do great leadership programs and the company does poorly in the next couple of years. And sometimes this company do no leadership programs and the company does brilliantly in the next couple of years. There's just no correlation there that is worth looking at. Okay, because so that's the first point. It depends how, how you define leadership programs. So you have to, it depends. And if they yeah. certain leaderships are called leadership programs, but they actually are linked to value creating outcomes and, and they do better. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is psychometrics. I mean, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I've often been shouted at by colleagues of mine who say, you know, you, you sort of not, not, it's not fair that you said psychometrics is no good. I mean, you know, because I'm qualified to make the statement, ironically. So my thing is not that psychometrics are invalid. That's, I'm not making that statement at all. They tell yeah, us something. Rich psychometrics. It's that there is no link that you can say for sure that if you come out like this in a personality test, you will perform better in this company doing this job. Yeah. You can't make that link. So, for example, you know, when they do these psychometric tests for recruitment, uh, the, 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 the research is not there for it. The research is not there for it. So, and why is that again? Because, you know, both these things, if you take psychometrics, they are totally uh, stripped of context. And I talk about the fish in the fish tank. Yeah. You know, they, they, do, they cannot and do not take into account the unique context that the individual is in. 
And it is really in the chemistry or what I call the axis between the context that I'm in and who I am. And this, this, this very complex chemistry of the time that is happening, the nature of that context, the nature of myself and the way we come together in a particular way, which is very unpredictable, um, that determines the outcomes. And the variables are so great, possibly infinite, that it's not really all that predictable. Right. And we we be fooling ourselves. I mean, we actually been fooling ourselves. Um, I mean, to the point at which there are some ethical questions that need to be asked of my industry. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, you know, the idea that we test people and then make suggestions that based on those tests, mm -hmm. you could, you know, you you could, Flawed. you know, make some prediction on how they'll perform is very problematic, particularly if we're taking shareholder money and, and, and spending that money on that, when the science is very, very weak. That is ethically a problem because we are putting people, um, aside from the spending ethics of it, uh, we are putting people uh, into, call them trajectories or assumptions about who they are and what they can do, which are not underwritten properly in science. And we're oh. saying that it is. Why has this gone on for so long then? Because, you, you know, you and I are a similar age and we've, we've been through the, the academic system and we've, we've, we've been in various organisations and industries. How come this gone on for so long? Because you used the phrase, the emperor's new clothes, and I, and I understand that. So what do you think has been behind the momentum for this insatiable appetite for it, for development and individual focus? I mean, Adam, I think that's, that's, that is the number one question. That is okay. bang on to the number one question because that the, we, when we talk about psychometrics, that's just a tiny symptom of a thousand different phenomena yeah. that are all the emperor without clothes. For you know, now let, let me just list five and then we'll get to answer your question. Yeah. Number one, okay, performance measures, this balance weighted scorecard. Yes. KPIs. Yes. In rating systems, the science on that is not only doesn't that correlates to improving your performance. If anything, it either does nothing to your performance or it makes it worse. Right. Okay. Number two, job grades and salary bands. Not only does that not bring fairness, because the assumption is that that's fairness, you know, job grade, salary bands. I just give you that not only is that not bring fairness, because it's perceived that it's fair because you can define these things, but it, is, it, it entrenches unfairness because it all depends on how you argue for what your responsibilities are. And it's so reductionist that people start gaming the system to try and increase their grade, yep. for example. Um, and it's not based on value creation. It's based on what I'm responsible for. So it's, it's, it's not actually linked to outcomes. It's linked to ownership. And which ego. Is, which is not connected to performance. Yeah. So it's also, and this is a nuts. It's completely nuts. You know, I mean, I can, I can go on, you know, promote, promoting people, the way people are promoted in a hierarchy with an org chart, as, as if this is somehow a positive phenomena for organizational um, outcomes. It's a negative one. It, 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 it creates, it reduces the ability to, to work. So okay. let's take a simple example of managing your manager. I always use this. How much of management is actually being managed by your subordinates? And you can ask anyone who's worked in a company, you know this, Adam, in any organization, right? How much of your time is actually you managing your manager? 
so that he or she can just get out your way so that you can actually do the real work. And the irony is your manager's doing that to his or her manager. As in blocking like each other. It's a kind of theater of nuts. It's a circus, okay, of, of this. And how much of resource is going into, and that's time, effort, everything, is going into this internal theater of us managing each other rather than focusing on creating some kind of valuable outcome. And if you looked at the ratio, my God, it's, a, it's scary if you start adding it up. And I do that. I ask people, how much of your time in a single day is producing things to, to satiate the control needs of your manager yeah. rather than focusing on what would be good for the clients or the business or society? And your answers you get are frightening. I bet. Frightening. I mean, and, and the more senior you get, the worse it gets. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps the less that it's actually seen as being a negative aspect. Yes. I mean, you know, I'll say something here. I hope, I hope that this doesn't get me in trouble, but boards, company boards. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the, uh, what it would be empirically. So I'm going to give a wild guess. I would say 95% of what they do is not only a waste of time, but actually detracts from value creating activity. Right. Yet they take all the money. I mean, it's it's a um, it's nuts. Well, then we get into that inequality argument. Ask the people who are actually on the ground delivering the products and services themselves, and ask them how helpful the ivory tower crowd are, of which I'm a member. So that's why I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm going to come and back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they'll tell you titles. Take titles. Supreme Galactic Commander Level Four Title. I mean. You know, everyone wants a title. I mean, what for? How, you know, so to answer your question, what is the cause of this? The cause of this is the, it's the model that we use for organization based in, in, in the 20th century ideology of the machine. Okay, it came out of the industrial age. Yeah. So the industrial age created an industrial model of organizing human beings in the form of, if you like, the metaphor of a factory conveyor belt. The so-called line manager, well, what is this line? You know, it's a nice metaphor for a production line. And the line manager is the manager managing the people on the production line or the people on the line. And in many respects, we've treated human beings like machines. So we've created this either militarized kind of model or more accurately, when you look and you define it, we've really created this idea that it's a machine. Yeah. And what you've got to do is you've got all the, you've got this hierarchy of control, and you you know uh, uh, you mustn't think you must just do what we tell you. And we divide it up into job descriptions and job grades and salary bands and KPIs and all these wonderful things. And we keep testing you and we reward you. And it's all these little cogs in a machine, and they all kind of come together in an operating model. I mean, even this notion of an operating model is a machine metaphor. Um, and controlled by the geniuses at the top, which is, by the way, not on my list of five, is the other one is that the assumption is that your manager is cleverer than you. Right, okay. Or knows more than you. You know, this is also emperor's new clothes. Just because someone's more senior in the organization doesn't mean they know more. I agree. And, uh, you know, but yet the assumption is there that it's the case. So this model of 20th century thinking, which we mustn't, I guess, poo-poo too much because it did create the prosperity of the 20th century. Yes. So it's a very effective model in many respects, but it has a it's long out um, outstripped its usefulness now. And the downsides 
of the reductionism, which is really the negative phenomenon of reducing complex living system variables into simple parts. Um, and the fantasies of control and predictability, which are really the two key things we can control and we can predict, um, have been, you know, need to be let go of because we are alive, we're a living system. So the answer is that actually 21st century thinking is that we need the rules for living systems to organize ourselves, not machines. And I'm glad you mentioned this point because you, you talked about, didn't you, that that balance between uh, freedom to kind of freedom to interpret, freedom to be human almost, and management control. And in some ways, the dial up and the dial down has, has been the wrong way around for, for some time. Absolutely right. I mean, if you take those two metrics, level of management control, mm -hmm. the amount of control exerted by a manager on his or her subordinates, even that term subordinate, Think about that language, but you know, at any level in the organization or the culture of control, contract compliance, you know, all that kind of uh, a structural bureaucracy combined with managerial looking over your shoulder and with the, the, the pen and the clipboard experience. And the level of that phenomena puts up against the degree of freedom that any person working uh, experiences in being able to deploy their talent to create value, you can see that that's inversely correlated relationship. The more management control, the less freedom and vice versa. So we have been obsessed with management control because we're in the industrial model. Yeah. Because if you, you know, from a machine point of view, the more control you have of the machine, the better. But a living system point of view is not the case. You want a balance of control and freedom, or like Yitzhak Adizas talks about in the Adizas Corporate Lifecycle, Adizas Institute, talks about the balance of control and flexibility. Or you can go to any kind of systems thinking idea. It's, it's think about yourself as a human being. You, know, you need boundaries, but you don't want to be in jail. You know, Having Guard no rails. boundaries is not the answer, but having too many boundaries is also not the answer. It's that delicate balancing act. I call it walk the tightrope. Yeah that delicate balance of walking the tightrope of always balancing the amount of control with the amount of freedom and allowing the individual as, as much autonomy as possible to navigate the tightrope. You know what, sometimes I think of the analogy, Mark, of uh, the guardrails at a bowling alley where, you know, my son, when he was younger, was, was trying to throw the ball down the alley and the guardrails were up just to, just to keep the ball from going into the gully completely. But the ball was able to do its thing and, uh, and maybe it was a good bowl or maybe it really wasn't a good bowl, but it wasn't going in the gully and, and being a, a void ball as such. I don't know whether that's a good example. No, it's, you know it is what a I mean? good one because he still had to roll the ball. He had yes. to find his way. And he produced the guardrail just so that he could learn. And I think the word learning is, has come up in, in your example. So I give the example of using a, a GPS like Waze or Google Maps to get to a destination. How massively helpful piece of technology, the likes of which living in London as we do, yeah. would be terrible without it. And I remember many years ago not having that and using that A, A to Z map to, find, to get something. Yes. My God, how much better is life that we have uh, Google Maps today? However, and here's the however, I have got a friend. He lives down in, uh, near Harrow Road. I have been driving to his house for five years from where I live in North London. Do you know that uh, a while back, I still needed the GPS to get to his house? I, I can't count the amount of times I've been there. Why is that? 
because I've not learned how to get there. Autopilot. The reason I haven't learned is because I keep using the GPS. And that is the downside of the industrial model. The brilliance of Google Maps, which is undeniable. The likes of which I would never give up, not for anything, but it doesn't allow me to learn. Right. Because I'm a living system. And if you understand that, then you know, hold on a second, just like your kid with the, with the, what do you call those things? The guardrails. The I call guardrails. Them. You've got to take the guardrails down. I have to actually say, I'm not using the GPS to get to Ed's house. I am going to get there without the GPS and see if I can remember it now. And I only have to do that once or twice and I'll never need the GPS again because I would have learned how to get there. But until you put the guardrails down, your son is not going to learn to bowl that ball properly. So at some point, you have to actually not have the control, not have the guidance. And that's the, you know, the operating model, the salary bangs, the psychometrics, the, all that stuff are guardrails. They're all control fantasies. And as a result, they end up stripping human beings of their inability to innovate, to use their initiative, to think together in, in, in effective ways on how to create the necessary outcomes to truly be you know, out of the ordinary. You know, Mark, you use a phrase, which, which again, I've, I've made a note here about, it's context for outcomes. And so my question is, how are you dealing with this challenge in the role that you have right now? Because obviously you are in a big and global organization, which has been around for many, many decades and wants and craves sustainable growth, understandably. How do you, how do you find that? How do you meet that challenge? So I use, I've asked that question very often, actually, and I, I, use a, I use paradigms in my work as much as possible. Because okay. what I realize is that it doesn't help when I say to a manager in our organization who wants to introduce job titles into his or her area, it doesn't help when I say, we don't do job titles. The only time you have a title is if there's a, a value-creating outcome for it. Yes. yes. Uh, so, for example, just to give it, there's a good example of one. If you need on your business card, it needs to say managing director on your business card in order to get an appointment with a client who only wants to talk to the managing director, fine, we'll make the whole lot of you managing directors. <laughs> the okay. enabler. So the, right, but the idea that there's this sort of... Um, you know, hierarchy that you aspire to and you go from assistant orange peeler to manager orange peeler to being on the bench to being on this on the field. That whole structure doesn't have value creating outcomes. It's all about control. Okay. So I kind of, it doesn't help if I have this big argument with, with one of our people who wants to introduce this to say, but my people want titles and uh, because we're, 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 we're talking at the wrong level. I need to step into the paradigm that he or she is using and say, look, you're coming from a particular paradigm of thinking, which is this idea that human beings can be controlled and you're the puppeteer. And we then have to talk at the paradigm level. And if I can get, or any of my people can get, individuals who are leading in our organization to shift their paradigm to the 21st century paradigm, they themselves, see the way to make these decisions. They don't need to be told you can do this and you can't do that. Okay. So the answer to your question is what I do is I work at the level of paradigm or culture, if you like. I look at the cultural ideologies and try to bring that thinking 
into the organization. And then the people themselves will self-organize in more effective ways. Now, Mark, we're going to have people listening to this. Lots of people, I hope. I'm fascinated by this, and, and I could go for ages on this subject. Um, but we're hopefully going to have listeners listening to this who are leaders at many levels uh, across sectors and geographies uh, or who represent organizations, small, medium, and large, who may be thinking, I, I, I get this, but they might be thinking, where do I start? Where would be a good place for them to start? Because it's a, it's a big piece, and it's one that is perhaps – too difficult to solve in the time that we have. So where can someone start? That's a great question. So I always recommend thinking about the notion of team as opposed to start. Okay. Most organizations, uh, no matter how big or small they are, are a collection of teams, starting with a team of one. And even if you've got, like we have, you know, we have nearly 10,000 people in 32 offices around the world. In the end, it doesn't matter. They all are structured in teams. And they sort of self-function in units. Right. So one of the fantasies that scale is an issue, just to put that aside, scale's not an issue because it doesn't matter how big you are, you've still got these little units um, of, of, of small shared task groups of people, which we like to call teams. That's the right place to start. So wherever you are, you, no matter how senior or junior you are in an organization, you are in a team somewhere. Right. And if you're a manager of a team, or a leader of team, and even if you are, there is an opportunity usually every day, but it's certainly in the course of a week, to have a team conversation. And in that conversation, the opportunity is to ask some very important questions. And one of those questions you should ask is to say, let's take a little bit of a, let's take stock of all the activity that we are doing in this team that isn't directly linked to real value creation. Right. And it's actually more linked to all our ideas about control and all sorts of other who knows what fantasies about what we have to do or need to do or used to do and have always done and never thought to question. And let's define only those things that are directly linked to the value creating activity that our purpose is based on. So that means our first task is to say, what is our purpose? Our true purpose. What are, we, what are we responsible for delivering and creating that is valuable to those that we serve? Mm -hmm. Now, whether you're in a commercial environment or in the police or in a school, it doesn't matter. You're trying to create value in some way by providing a service or a product or something. How do we link to that and truly define that purpose and then ask questions of all the stuff that we do in how linked is it? And when you find things that you, you don't really have a great argument for, how quickly can we drop it? You know, and it's amazing. And it sounds, it sounds a simple task because what happens is you find that people in the team are addicted to all sorts of things that have to happen, which are not connected to value creation. Because ultimately, that's the test. The test is value creation. And that's why, you know, I have said this to um, members of a board, to non-executive directors, who, who always come from a good place most of the time. And they say, what more could we be doing? What else could we do? And my response, which I did last year to one particular uh, a member of our board, I said, I think the challenge is what less can we do? quite liberating in a way if yes we can land on it how, how can we get how can we get out of the way 
And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working on a book at the moment uh, called, you know, um, Getting Out of the Way, Leadership in the 21st Century. Yeah. That's the biggest problem is that we've, we've all get in the way of each other uh, through our own control and predictability needs. And, you know, to the credit of this individual I spoke to last year, who was, was a board member, he became interested in this idea. Instead of saying, well, what else could we do this year to add value? I would say, what less could we do this year to add value? by getting out of the way and freeing up resource, effort, and energy for people to autonomously focus on what they think is right. That was a big shift in thinking. And it actually resulted rather immediately in us consolidating several compliance regimes into just one, which has freed up all the space and time for people to do things. that's just a simple example. I don't underestimate how easy that is at all. As you say, it might sound easy, but but definitely not. I, I think this is going to excite some people in relation to thinking what they could or should be doing uh, as we move out of this global pandemic. So my question is, how can people find out a bit more, connect or or dig into the, the research that you're working on? Uh, what's the best way? Okay, so there, there is, this is just to be clear, I mean, I, I, I wish from a narcissistic point of view that this was my personal, I personally come up with these <laughs> ideas. But uh, I must confess that, you know, this is actually the leading thinking in the world. And there are many authors and uh, uh, people that are doing some great work on this. One of those uh, people is, um, let me just pick a few. Okay. I like the work of uh, Frederick Lalo. Uh, he wrote a book called Reinventing Organizations, published in 2014. Right. It's an excellent text and um, really, you know, outlines a lot of this kind of thinking. Um, uh, Sudanshu Pasule, who's yes. at Duke, wrote a book called Rehumanizing yep. Leaders, so which I think was last year or the year before. Last Fantastic year. Yeah. book. Uh, also, you know, Sudanshu's book there, I really kind of outlines this, uh, this, this thinking. And then, you, you know, generally speaking, the field that we're talking about here is systems theory, systems thinking. That's the, 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 the theoretical framework that this thinking comes from. And it's really, call it the rules of living systems. So if, we, if you want to uh, watch a wonderful documentary uh, made by the BBC, yep. which uh, is it's called The Secret Life of Chaos. It's freely available on the internet, on YouTube and so forth. Um, and it has, uh, I think, uh, that professor from Surrey, Jamil Al-Khalili, I think his name is, fantastic, fantastic documentary on chaos theory, which is, the again, the, the physics or the science of living systems. And that really will underwrite at a, at, a, at a scientific level some of the things I'm saying, which are around the fact that living systems are not as controllable as you like, living systems are not as predictable as you think, and that the whole industrial model is highly problematic when we think about living systems. And of course, any human endeavor is a living system. Uh, this is fascinating stuff. It really is. And I do hope that you and I will connect again and, and do a, a version two or another episode on this. Um, I've, got, I've got a bit of a fun question for you, which kind of takes us full circle, because with all of the experience um, that you've had, what would be your best advice to a 21-year-old Mark? Uh, just to clarify the question, we're talking about what I would say to myself. Yep. We're, we're talking about what I would say to the average twenty-one-year-old. No, man. you. Oh, what I would have said. Yeah, to to a twenty-one-year-old self. Uh, to be honest, I would have said, and I know this may sound rather existential, but I would have said, 
Don't take it too seriously. No one's in control. It's okay that no one's in control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do they say that? Trust the process. Trust the process. You Trust know, the process. Chaos is order. Order is chaos in a particular way. And so, you know, I live, I live and still do live with a fair amount of anxiety. Like I think about this lockdown right now and the virus and the amount of panic that the world has been in around kind of controlling, you know, the spread of this virus. And in some ways, you know, there's a lesson in it that, well, you know, there's only so much control we can have here. We're going to have to live with this virus yeah. and form a relationship with it, you know. Um, and I think that, uh, that there's something in, in the kind of reset, if you like, that is important there around systems thinking. We live in the world, not off the world. Mark, it's been an absolute privilege. I, I've loved this. Um, you've given me some homework to go and uh, check out some books, watch some videos, and, and you know, in some ways challenge my own thinking uh, as I go about what I do on a day-to-day basis. So it's been an absolute privilege, and I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's been great. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.